I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 12 in just a moment. The title of the sermon this morning is Evaluating a Ministry. And to set the stage, I want to do a bit of a case study, a little bit of a story of two people from church history. Uh, You could call it a tale of two Charleses. There was a pastor and a preacher, one named of Charles Finney and one named Charles Simeon. Now, Charles Finney was a revival preacher. Uh, In early to mid-1800s, when he preached, uh, hundreds of people responded. The town would come out, uh, shops would close up and tell people they ought to go and hear Finney. Crime rates went down when Finney came to town. He later became a college president and an author, and his impact is still felt today in American Christianity. There's another Charles named Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon was pastor of Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge. Uh, He was a little bit earlier than Finney. He was the late 1700s, and he was an Anglican, which meant uh, the congregation did not vote on him as pastor. It meant he was appointed as pastor. And the congregation did not want Charles Simeon as their pastor. He became pastor of the church at the age of 24. And on his very first Sunday, he stood in a sanctuary that would seat about 900 people. And most of the members stayed home that day in protest. In those days, they had pews with doors and locks on it. And so you actually paid for your pew. And so those members who objected to him as being pastor, they locked their pew And it was illegal for you to unlock it for someone else to sit there. So they were making it difficult for people to even come to church to hear Charles Simeon preach. Well, he took it upon himself out of his own pocketbook and he set up chairs and and different things in every crevice that could be found uh, so that people could come and hear the gospel preached. Well, the the warden of the church, the the caretaker, the person uh, we might think of as being janitor, he took those all and threw them out into the churchyard. This is the kind of opposition that Charles Simeon preached. It was their custom that they had not only their morning service, but they also had an afternoon service. And during that afternoon service, the congregation was in charge of who got to preach. Well, they didn't want their pastor to preach. They called on the associate pastor, the guy that they wanted to fill that position. And so he preached on Sunday afternoons. Well, Simeon said, that's fine. I'll start a second afternoon service, an evening service, so that other people, people from the community, were wanting to hear the word of God preached. And so members of the church locked the doors so that the service could not take place. Well, how do we evaluate two ministries like this? One, it seems like uh, people are just responding to Christ uh, by the droves. And with the other ministry, it seems like there's clearly a problem. The people don't want you there. So why are you enduring this sort of ministry? Well, we will return to Charles Finney and Charles Simeon a little bit uh, later on in the sermon. But for now, I want us to get God's word before us so that we can rightly learn how to evaluate Christian ministry. Have you found your place in God's Word? If you need a pew Bible, I should have already told you this, it's on page 956 if you don't have a Bible with you. But in honor of the reading God's Word, if you were able, would you stand as we read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. God's Word says this, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. 
But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. God in heaven, we come to you now. We've heard your word read. We submit now to its instructions. Would you clear our minds from all distractions? And and Father, we pray that by your spirit, you would make your word clear that we would respond in obedience. We ask all these things for your glory and in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. As Paul is writing back to the church in Thessalonica, he's giving what seems to be a defense of his ministry. And we don't know all the details of what was taking place back in Thessalonica. We don't have a firm understanding of what kind of objections were coming to Paul and his ministry. But Paul was just one of many people who came to town with a message. There were many philosophers and religious teachers during those days, and they would all come to town and they would uh, have a gathering and people would hear it. Uh, It seems foreign to us today to imagine people turning out just to hear someone talk. Uh, But remember, this was before Netflix and Facebook and everything else. And so uh, this was a a wonderful form of entertainment. People would come out to hear what was spoken. Sometimes it would be a religious teacher. Sometimes it would be a philosopher. Sometimes it would simply be a charlatan. But people were used to people uh, coming to town, these other speakers coming to town. And so Paul stood out. He was different from these people. And so whatever rumors were going around about why Paul had to leave, whatever uh, things were being said against him, however he was being slandered in ministry, Paul is writing back. In one sense, he's defending his ministry. But more than that, he's teaching us how to measure a ministry. How do we effectively uh, evaluate a ministry? Well, you might be asking yourself, Pastor, do I really need to worry about this? I mean, we've got you and you're, you're doing a great job. We're not really worried about anybody else. I appreciate the confidence, but it is important that you know how to evaluate ministry, not just mine, but yours as well, because all Christians are ministers. We're all to be serving God. So we need to measure up of how uh, we're effectively serving the Lord. But I'm not naive enough to think that I'm the only preacher that you hear. 
Very grateful uh, for those of you, especially who are not members, but who choose to, to come gather with us and to hear God's word preached. But we live in a time when it's so easy uh, to hear someone else explaining the word of God. It's been that way for quite a while, ever since the, uh, the invention of the printing press. Sermons have been circulated, and you could hear or read a sermon from someone who was not your pastor. And then uh, fast forward a couple of hundred years with recording technology and tape ministry, but now we have the internet. And it's so easy to not only listen to entire sermons on YouTube and Facebook and places like that, but also little snippets, little clips on Facebook and TikTok and everywhere else. And so it's not hard for you to hear someone else teaching you God's word. We need to know how to evaluate that. We need to understand what God's word says about ministry in general. More than that, we simply need to know God's word. God has spoken and we're responsible to understand what he has said to us here in this passage. Now, in this passage, verses 1 through 12 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to see uh, Paul's, uh, he's instructing them on how to evaluate a ministry by its message, and by its motives, and by its methods. Verses 1 and 2, Paul will instruct about evaluating a ministry by its message. Verses 3 through 6, evaluating a ministry by its motives. Next week, we'll pick up the rest of the passage, evaluating a ministry by its methods in verses 7 through 12. So we'll only get through the first two points, the two ideas this morning, but I wanted to read the entire passage for the sake of context. Paul begins by pointing them back to what they remember. Keep your Bibles open so that you can look with me. Uh, it will be a lot easier just looking down on the page for this, uh, these repetition here in verses 1 through 12. Paul points out to them, verse 1, for you yourselves know. Verse 2, in the middle of the verse, he says... Uh, we had already been, we'd already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know. In the middle of verse 5, he, he reminds them we didn't come with words of flattery, as you know. Verse 9 begins, for you remember. Verse 10 begins, you are witnesses. Verse 11 begins, for you know. Paul is pointing them back to what they know. No matter what else is being said in Thessalonica about him and Silas and Timothy, they know because they were there. They saw these things happen. Sometimes we conveniently forget things and we pretend like something else besides reality is taking place. But Paul points back and he reminds them of what they already know. And he says, oh, for you know yourselves, brother, that our coming to you was not in vain. It was not empty or without effect. Now, we've already seen in chapter one, verse five, where Paul said that our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And he says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So Paul is zooming in on this idea that they know that the word came to them in full power. They know that the coming was not in vain, but he's also reminding them this is the kind of ministry that we had among you. He reminds them of this. He uses this language of remembering throughout this chapter. Well, he says, you know that our coming to you was not in vain. But verse 2, that we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. Shamefully treated and suffered. Paul is pointing back to Acts 16. If you remember his ministry there in Philippi. Paul uh, had glorious times in Philippi and then he wound up in jail. Things didn't necessarily go the way we would normally want things to go in ministry. 
And so Paul suffered physical abuse. He was taken because he healed a slave girl. He cast the demons out of her for his troubles. He was arrested and he was beaten with rods, the text says, with many blows. And he was thrown into prison. In the act of being thrown into prison, Paul pointed out to them they were acting unjustly. They were not treating him as they were supposed to treat Roman citizens, of which Paul was one. And so not only did they suffer physical abuse, but that shamefully treated language is pointing back to the disgrace, the humiliation that Paul suffered in Philippi. Well, word got out about that. They knew about it uh, in Thessalonica. They knew that Paul had been beaten publicly, uncondemned, uh, men who were Roman citizens, and they'd been thrown into prison. So they knew about that in Thessalonica. But Paul didn't regroup before he went to Thessalonica. He didn't go to plan B. Paul didn't pull Silas and Timothy aside before they went into town and say, you know what, guys, it didn't really work out too well. We need to figure out something different so we don't wind up in prison this time. Everywhere we go, we keep preaching the gospel and we keep running into trouble. We keep getting thrown into jail. Paul did not gather with Silas and Timothy and change his strategy. He didn't say, you know, guys, we should really preach in a form that the culture can handle. Paul said, we're going to go in and we're going to do the same thing that we've done in every other city. Do you remember when we saw it at the beginning of this series in Acts 17? It said that Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. This was Paul's message everywhere he went. This was Paul's message in good times and in bad times, in hardship and in difficulty and in abundance. This was his message. Jesus is Lord. They accused him of preaching against Caesar, of saying there was another king. And Paul continued. He said, Jesus is Lord. Not Justin Trudeau or Joe Biden or Donald Trump for that matter. Jesus is Lord, not Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping or any other dictator on the face of the earth. Jesus is Lord. This was Paul's message everywhere he went. And we reject any other message. When anyone comes to us preaching a different gospel, we reject that. The first mark, the basic, the foundational mark, you have to get this right to even be a Christian minister is to get the message right. Paul faithfully preached the gospel. Well, you say, you know, I, I, I know these, these teachers, these people that I listen to, uh, I hear them on Facebook or YouTube or somewhere, maybe watch them on TV, and I know that things aren't quite right I know they're not a Baptist. I know they don't agree with everything that we would teach here at Ramah. But pastor, you've got to understand, they're just so funny. He, I mean, that guy, he is just a funny storyteller. I mean, he captures my attention and I just can't stop listening to him. You say, these guys really, they make me feel good about myself. Well, when we rightly understand the gospel, the gospel makes us feel bad about ourselves, but it makes us feel real good about Jesus. When we understand the gospel, we see that we are sinners and we have offended a holy God, but that Christ has offered redemption, that all who repent of their sins and trust Christ can begin to feel good about their Savior. 
But if you're listening to a message that only uh, offers self-help, if you're listening to someone who talks more about health and wealth and prosperity, more than they talk about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you need to flee from that teaching. You need to run away from that. You need to turn the TV off. You need to unfollow them. They are not trustworthy. Faithful ministry boldly declares the gospel of God, no matter the circumstances. Paul says at the end of verse 2, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict, in the midst of much opposition. It's the word for an athletic event. You think about the strenuous effort, the energy that goes into an athletic event. Paul says that's what we were going through. The Greek word gives us our English word for agonizing, for agony. Paul went through agony as he boldly declared the gospel of God. If we've learned anything in the last two years, it's that the culture wants to silence the church. The culture will do anything it can to silence the church, whether it's in the name of public health, whether it's in the name of love or in the name of of hatred. The culture wants to do anything they can to silence the church. But what we need are more pastors who will boldly proclaim the gospel of God saying, we will gather, we will preach God's word no matter the cost, even in the midst of much conflict. That's the very basic first step of evaluating a ministry. What is their message? If they're deviating from the gospel, then you don't need any part of them. It doesn't matter if they put out nice songs that go with it and you think, well, I can separate the songs from the preaching. No, that's how they propagate their false gospel. You can't separate the teacher from their doctrine, whether they're singing it or whether they're teaching it. We cannot separate ourselves from that. Jesus said, woe to those false teachers. If Jesus is bringing judgment upon false teachers, why would we want to be anywhere near them? When we evaluate ministry, the most essential, the bottom line, is that they have to get the gospel right. They have to get the message right. But we can also evaluate ministry based on its motives. We look at verses 3 through 6. Paul says in verse 3, for our appeal, our appeal, our exhortation, our preaching, our message, Paul preached for a verdict. That's how my teacher used to put it. You're preaching for a verdict. And I've tried to emphasize to you that when we come to respond here at the end of the sermon, we're not only hoping that someone will repent and trust Christ. Each of us have to respond to what we've heard taught in God's word. Paul was doing that. He was uh, appealing to them. He was making an exhortation to them. And then he helps distinguish by using a literary tool called a triad. A triad is simply a group of three. Three things listed closely together, and it's used to make a point. Now, you've already seen that. If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 3, when Paul talked about the work of faith and the labor of love and the steadfastness of hope, that faith, love, and hope, that's, that's a triad. It's just a group of three things. So here in this section about motives, Paul uses two triads, each supported by reason. He's going to give, here's three things that faithful ministry is not, and here's why. 
And then again, he's going to say, here's three things that faithful ministry is not. And here's why. So let's see that. He's going to say in verse 3 that faithful ministry, effective ministry is not error or impurity or an attempt to deceive. Why? In verse 4, because we're speaking to please God. It's also not flattery or greed or glory. Verses 5 and 6. Why? Because God is watching. I believe he gives that reason there in the end of verse 5. God is witness. So two triads, each supported by a reason. What is faithful ministry not? We're going to learn from the negative. Well, he first says it's not error. It's not error. He says, look there in verse 3. For our appeal does not spring from error. Many people went around and they didn't care what they taught in those days. They were only trying to make money, as we'll see. But Paul says, my message didn't spring from error. We don't know what he was accused of. We don't know if people were saying that he was misrepresenting the Old Testament or if he was just a liar all around. But Paul says, no, we did not teach from error. Now, I hope that I've already made clear in the beginning that we have to be serious about false teaching. I'm not going to repeat all of that right now. But when we're evaluating a ministry, it cannot spring from error. But perhaps you're thinking, well, you're the pastor. You're just conscientious about that sort of thing. You, you know that things have to be taught according to the truth, but we're not worried about that as much as you are. Well, I want to remind you of the warnings that Paul gives to anyone who teaches God's word. Even just looking at three little books, the pastoral epistles, Paul says over and over again, guard the good deposit. Guard what has been entrusted to you. Be a worker that needs not be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Paul tells anyone who teaches the scriptures that they're to cut it straight. They're to handle God's word rightly. So even if we think it's not as important for one of us, anyone who's teaching God's word needs to take that seriously. Teaching cannot spring from error. Pastors and Bible teachers are held to this standard. And it's important that anyone listening to them understand that standard. Think about this. Do you like it when someone misquotes you? I remember being in a workshop and and a leader of that workshop really drove the point home. He said, we don't want to stand before God and God tell us that we have misquoted him. But people do that week after week after week. They say things about God that are not true, that are not found in the scriptures. Their teaching, their ministry is springing from error. We must avoid that. That's a wrong motive in ministry. But Paul says not only in verse 3 that our appeal does not spring from error, but he also says it does not spring from impurity. From impurity. This points to the idea of sin. It's not springing from sin. It often refers to sexual sin. How often when someone is being unfaithful in the pulpit, they're already being unfaithful at home. There's tragic story after tragic story of people who at one time were held up as faithful teachers of the gospel. And ultimately they fail. Their teaching became aberrant. And it wasn't long until it was discovered They were also being unfaithful at home. Paul says that's not who we were. Many people came to town in those days and they were seeking to get gratification any way possible. Paul is distinguishing himself. He's saying that's not what our ministry was about. It was not about error. It was not about impurity. 
And it was not about any attempt to deceive. It gives the idea of luring something away, snatching it away, almost like a fish hook. Paul says that's not what we were about. He says we didn't pull the old bait and switch. It's become far too common in Christianity in America to do something along the lines of bait and switch. We say, well, we're going to get people here with this thing. And then once we get them here, then we'll share the gospel with them. Brothers and sisters, that's dishonesty. If we tell them they're coming for this and then we switch what we're doing, we're lying to them. If we're going to be about mercy ministry, then we do mercy ministry and we share the gospel as the Lord opens those doors. But we don't do one thing and then tell them we're going to do the other. We don't lure people in with a gift or a giveaway. And then once they're here, we tell them somebody doesn't like it. All right. So Paul says he's not about any attempt to deceive that it's not about baiting and switching. So he summarizes his first, his first point, his first group of his first triad here. He says, we're not about error. Our ministry was not about impurity and it was not about any attempt to deceive. I really like the way one commentator summed it all up. He said, the heralds were not hucksters who hustled these people. That's what they were used to. Heralds being hucksters who were hustling them. We see that in our day. We can flip through the stations and we see people that we know are hustling us. They just want money. This is not new. This has been going on since the days of the New Testament. And Paul says, that's not what we were about. But why is that? He's given the first triad. Now, why is this reason? Verse four, he says, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. There's a pattern here in this verse that Paul refers to. He says they've been approved by God. They've been entrusted with the gospel and then they speak the gospel. Paul and the other apostles, any Christian minister has been approved by God. They've been called by God to go and preach the gospel. They've been entrusted with this. They're to guard the good deposit, as I've already mentioned. And then they go speak the gospel. So Paul says, just as we have been approved by God, he has entrusted us with the gospel. So we are speaking. So we are sharing. So we are evangelizing. Not to please man, but to please God who test our hearts. Paul says in Galatians chapter one, he says, for am I seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still striving to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. I love that verse. Paul is saying, look, if I'm in this to please people, I am in the wrong line of business. A minister of the gospel cannot be seeking to please the people. I want you to hear me very carefully. I love you. As Paul says at the end of verse eight, you have become very dear to me. I value each of you as my church family. My goal is not to please you. My goal is to please God. How does this impact how we evaluate a ministry? You can hear people and you know that they're just trying to please you. They're just trying to say what you want them to say. It's a lot easier that way. It would be a lot easier if I just 
sought to please you. And I could go and ask you. I could say, well, what is it that you want me to do this week? And what would you have me to preach on? And, and uh, how can I better serve you in a way that focuses on you? That's a lot easier. But that's not what God's called us to do. He's called the ministers of the gospel to please him, not to please the world, not to please one another. And so when you hear a Bible teacher, and you can tell that they're avoiding the hard subjects, they're avoiding the text, they're not explaining what the text says. They may talk for 30 or 45 minutes, but they're not actually explaining what God's word says. They're seeking to please you rather than God. Why does that matter? Because God sees our hearts. God tests our motives. He knows the motives of ministry. That's the scary part. A preacher can fake it for a lot of people a lot of the time. But God sees all things. And Paul, as he's reflecting back on his time in Thessalonica, he says, look, we didn't come with error. We didn't come with flattery. We didn't come with impurity, any attempt to deceive. We didn't do it because God is watching God sees our hearts and God knows our motives. That's the first triad, the first uh, group of three reasons that he gives. But he gives another set of three reasons, starting in verse 5. He says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know. There's again that language of as you know or to remember. He's pointing back to the things that they saw with their own eyes. And he says, Guys, when you think back on what we said to you, you know we didn't come with words of flattery. Now, sometimes in our our day, we don't think a whole lot about flattery because, again, we're in the South. So everybody's nice to one another and we think, well, they're they're just being a nice person. But flattery in that day and in much of our day as well is used to gain power over someone. So in their culture, it was very common for you to use words of flattery to try to gain power over someone. There was a man named Eupolis. He was an Athenian poet. He lived 400 years before Christ. And here's what he said. He said, when I catch sight of a man who is rich and thick, I get my hooks into him. If this money bags happens to say anything, I praise him vehemently and express my amazement, pretending to find delight in his words. Do you hear that? You can see that happening. You can imagine the huckster there. He's just looking for anything he can say and do, and he uses flattery not to be nice, but to gain power over them. This was a very common thing in their culture. And Paul says, we didn't do that. We didn't come to you with words of flattery. He also says, we didn't come to you with pretext for greed. There in the middle of verse 5. He didn't come uh, with a mask for greed, as the text says. Um, If you remember the pastoral qualifications, when God tells... um, the churches, how to look for pastors. One of the qualifications is that they're not hungry for money. They're not lovers of money. So anyone who comes with a pretext for greed is already disqualified from Christian ministry. And yet Paul has to remind them, guys, we didn't come for that. We know there's lots of people around you who are doing that thing, but that's not what we're here for. And he also said, we're not here for glory. Verse six, nor did we seek glory from people whether it was from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. These public speakers, these philosophers, these religious teachers, in their day, they were movie stars. People got excited when they came to town. Paul says, we could have done that. 
We are, after all, apostles of Christ. We are sent by Christ to you. But we didn't throw our weight around. We didn't do that. Why? Because God is witness. In the end of verse 5. He's been reminding them over and over, you remember this, you know this, over and over. But now he says, God knows this. God is witness to this. God is watching. I remember last summer uh, in Nashville being uh, at the meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention. And uh, there was a very well-known, well-respected pastor from the state of Georgia on the platform. And he was berating the messengers for not agreeing with what he thought needed to happen. And he repeated the same refrain that had been going over those entire two days. The world is watching. The world is watching. You need to get on board with what I'm telling you to do because the world is watching. And I wanted to scream from my seat, God is watching. That's why we make the decisions we make because God is watching. It doesn't mean we don't care about our ministry, but above all, we minister to the world. We minister to the church. We minister to one another knowing that God is watching what we do. And Paul reminds them, look, here's all the reasons why we didn't do these things. We're different from all the other teachers and preachers who have come to town because we know that God is watching. God tests our hearts. God knows our motives. I want to return to those two Charleses that I mentioned, Charles Finney and Charles Simeon. Finney is the one, remember, who I told you he had lots of converts every time he preached. Well, let's evaluate his message really quickly. Finney denied the Bible's teaching about original sin. In children's Sunday school this morning, we talked about from Romans 5 how the Bible's very clear that we're all born sinners. You know, there's a lot of things that Catholics and Protestants disagree on. This one, everybody pretty much agrees. We're born sinners. Now, we can debate about some other things, but everybody knows we're born sinners. Finney didn't believe that. He said you could wait, and when you were old enough to understand, you could choose whether or not you were going uh, to sin or not. He had not only the wrong view about sin, he had the wrong view about sanctification, about how we grow in our Christian life. We're going to see more about that in 1 Thessalonians. Paul talks about how Christ works in us and how we grow in our faith, how we are sanctified. But Finney had a wrong understanding of that. He believed that you could eventually become perfect here on this earth, that you have that power within you. It doesn't matter about the Holy Spirit working in you. You could just do this all on your own, all in your own Strength. The Bible says that we work, our, our, we work out our sanctification because Christ is working in us, that the Holy Spirit is conforming us to the image of the Son, but not for Finney. He said you can do that all on your own. Perhaps most egregiously, he had the wrong view of the cross. He believed that Christ was just an example. He was just a good moral teacher coming to show us how we could have victory in our life and ultimately become that perfect person here on this earth. You see, Finney's message was really just a message not about Christ, but about humanity. So that's his message. He got the message wrong, badly wrong. What about his method? Well, I told you his impact is still felt today. He had these practices that are called the new measures. That's what they were uh, called historically. And what that really boiled down to was manipulation. Finney believed that if you sang the right songs and you worked on people's emotions in the right way, then you could get them to make a decision for Christ regardless 
of whether the Holy Spirit was at work at them, regardless of whether or not they understood the gospel. Clearly, we just saw he didn't understand it. He was getting it wrong, and he felt he could manipulate people to do everything, uh, to make a decision if he just did everything just right. Does that sound familiar? Do we see that in Christianity today, that if we can get the mood just right, then God will work no matter if the gospel is preached or not. So what about those books that I told you he wrote? He wrote a systematic theology. All that means is someone is taking the Bible, a Bible teacher takes the scriptures and attempts to understand it and organize it in a cohesive way. But when you look at Finney's systematic theology, the Bible's pretty much absent. There's not a whole lot of Bible in Finney's books. Instead, there's a whole lot about him. There's a whole lot of stories about how he did ministry. But what about all those converts? Because that's the thing. When we look at church history and we see somebody, we say, well, they led hundreds and thousands of people to Christ. How can we condemn them? How can we say that they didn't do a good thing? We've already seen that he had a wrong understanding of the gospel. So he wasn't leading people to Christ. He was leading them astray. And that became really evident in time because you could go back to those communities and there was no gospel presence there. When Paul preached the gospel in a city, he could leave and you could come back and say, there's Christians here. That gospel witness was not present where Finney preached. Well, what about Simeon? Charles Simeon, the one whose church didn't want him to be there. He endured 12 years of not even being allowed to preach the afternoon service by his own congregation. They didn't want him there. You'd think after 12 years, most people say, I'm going to go find a church where I'm wanted. But Simeon endured. He worked through hardship. He was faithful. He labored and toiled, as we'll see Paul say next week in verse 9. He persevered in the word and in prayer, ministering to these people, this one congregation, for 54 years. He was faithful. He endured. I'm not telling you that there weren't difficulties all throughout his ministry, but he endured. He won many people over to him. They began to love and accept him as their pastor. In his time there, he trained over 1,100 ministers to faithfully preach the gospel there in England. You can still read uh, Charles Simeon's sermons today, and they are a blessing to your soul because he rightly handles the text. He's explaining it very simply that Uh, Anyone, you don't have to go to seminary. You could open up a book by Charles Simeon and understand the preaching of the gospel. He was involved in missions. He did all sorts of wonderful things, but it took time. You see, with Finney, he was going for quick results. You could see it when people began falling out in the aisle and barking and laughing and coughing and doing all these sorts of things that marked his ministry. It looked like quick results. But Charles Simeon proved that good results, good fruit take time. You see, we live in a world of Finneys, and we need a whole lot more Simeons. Followers of Jesus Christ should accept nothing less. We need less ministers who think that ministry is like a microwave. We need more ministers who understand it's like the slow cooker. It takes time to get the good stuff. We labor and we toil knowing that God is at work even when we don't see it. And when we don't see God working, we don't assume that he's not, and we begin to try to generate false fruit on our own. We trust that God is working. We don't manipulate. We endure. 
knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. I'm almost done, but I want to point out one more thing to you. If you look at the first paragraph that I've read here, verse 1 and verse 8, the top of the paragraph, the tail of the paragraph, there's something that pops up on both ends. That's the gospel of God. I would be a failure if I proclaimed to you this morning of how you need to evaluate a ministry that ought to have the right message and I failed to proclaim the gospel of God. It's the same gospel that Paul has already explained in this book when he talked about how the Thessalonians believed, how they repented of their sins. They turned from idols to serve the living and true God. There were idols aplenty in Thessalonica and there's idols and distractions and temptations aplenty today. But if you've never truly trusted Christ, if you've never understood that God has sent his son and God has raised him from the dead and that Jesus stands ready to rescue us from the wrath that is to come, then I would urge you today to repent, to trust Christ. Turn away from all the things that are leading you astray and trust Christ. But for those of you who have trusted Christ, perhaps you've fallen prey to false teachers. You didn't do it intentionally. They caught your attention and they did some of the things here that we see in the passage. But you recognize after hearing God's word preached that that there are influences in your life that are leading you astray from God's word. Turn from those. Turn to the living and true God. There's forgiveness in Christ. None of this is meant uh, to leave you feeling condemned. Oh, no, I've listened to so-and-so for perhaps uh, a very long time. But you recognize that they're teaching in contradiction to the gospel. Repent. Turn away from this false teaching. And if your response is, Honestly, I don't know. I don't know God's word well enough to evaluate someone's ministry. That can change today too. Repent of all the things that are distracting you from God's word and dig into what God himself has spoken. Know Jesus better than you know any other teacher, even me. We all must respond to God's word as I have mentioned. So we're going to uh, take a moment reflection to be able to, uh, to pray to God right here in the pew. And then I'll pray for us and we will uh, sing a hymn of response. But let's take a moment uh, to reflect on what we've heard and pray to God.